You know, the great thing about church is that it's filled with all kinds of people and there's room for all of us because like Emily loves Valentine's Day. The only time I really love Valentine's Day is when it falls on Ash Wednesday. You get to say, I love you. Remember, you're going to die. I'm going to talk a little bit about being disciples of Christian, a member of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. For those of you who don't know, this church is a blend of two denominations United Church of Christ. If you are in the Northeast or Upper Midwest, you might know that as the Congregational Church, and the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. And no one ever knows what that is, but like sometimes it's the first Christian church of such and such place. Anyway, so I'm going to talk about this. So that said, the disciples are good Protestants that hailed from the Second Great Awakening in frontier America. And we don't spend a lot of time focusing on mystery. Now, those of you who come from a Church of Christ background, we would say that y'all split off from us. And I understand that you would say that we were the... um, splitters. Um, But you're here now. So So those people who come out of this second great awakening, awakening frontier American religions, we're straightforward. We don't really focus a lot on uh, mystery. We're practical. And in the disciples, even the two rituals that we have of baptism and communion, where most Christians will call those sacraments, we don't call those sacraments. We call them officially ordinances. That's, we say that because they are the two things that were ordained by Jesus. And a sacrament is a vehicle for God's grace but as a denomination, we say that it is a dim- those two actions are a demonstration of the practice of our faith. So as a frontier movement that inherited a distrust of creeds and tests and all things popish, many disciples will, will still eschew any sort of what I call clergy drag or vestment. I never saw a pastor in a robe until I was in high school. And even then, for the longest of time, it was very weird to see. Um, Although I wear them um, when I'm publicly representing the church. But at protests or sometimes like if I'm going into a healthcare sitting where it might be hard for me to get access, I'll wear a clergy collar, and I have to say that I always feel like I'm in a costume um, at that time, but I know that it means something to those who see it. Disciples didn't quibble about signs and symbols that pointed to something else. The body of Christ was made apparent in the gathered assembly, 
Our weekly gathering around the table reminded us of Jesus' last supper and his command to share in his meal each time we gathered. We didn't need to dive into the minutia of Eucharistic theological debates over consubstantiation. It's hard for somebody with a little bit of a lisp and transubstantiation because we viewed the meal as a memorial, a living reminder of God's grace that is found in getting out and feeding others, loving others, seeking holy wisdom, and doing what needs to be done. Yet, we all know there are parts of life that cannot be rationally explained. Parts of life that really are essential, while no part of anything that we can explain intellectually makes sense of it or logical. If we lived only in a rational realm, we'd never allow ourselves to fall in love. We'd never have children. We'd never get in an automobile. We'd never eat the sublime arroz a la tumbara from a little restaurant right on the Rio Papaluapan in Tacalapan. Because you have no idea what it was, but just because, why not? We'd never spend months cultivating soil, preparing compost, and planting tomatoes only to spend our days spreading over the blossoms and competing with snails. Living in a perfectly rational world, a world completely subject to absolute definition, is a world in which we'd miss so much. We'd miss the mysteries that open our hearts, that open our eyes, that open our imaginations. We'd miss those fleeting glimpses of eternity. The mystery doesn't mean that something's not real. It does imply that some things just cannot be quantified, completely grasped, defined, owned, put in its place. Today's scripture is one full of mystery. We know something is important, and we know something big is going to happen, because there's a mountain. Always remember when there's a hill or there's a mountain, you're supposed to pay attention. There's a whole lot going on here. The disciples had been with Jesus for a while now. He'd overseen the feeding of a multitude when it was certain that there wasn't enough. They had witnessed healing when it seemed that health was beyond anyone's grasp. And they'd seen him comfort the grieving, give them hope. And they had seen him open people's eyes through his teaching so that they had a new way to experience the text and life and their understanding of God. They were beginning to realize that there was a lot more about this Jesus than what they even thought. 
Of course, we really don't know exactly what they were thinking because Mark just doesn't give us much detail. But there must have been something compelling about Jesus, a certain je ne sais quoi, because Simon, Andrew, James, and John just up and left their homes and their livelihoods when Jesus invited them. In the chapter before today's, we find that Peter had seen something really special and had identified Jesus as the Messiah. Peter saw something really important. But when Jesus says that, okay, but, you know, my future is going to hold terrible suffering, it's not if you think about a Messiah as a king who's going to come and usher in this new political era, you're wrong. Well, Peter refuses to believe this. And Jesus calls one of his best friends, Satan, says, get behind me. Peter could not grasp that a Messiah would suffer, would be harmed, denigrated, his image of a Messiah was someone grand and glorious. He had a clear definition, and what Jesus described just didn't fit in this. In our reading today, Jesus takes his primary disciples, Peter, James, and John, with him to a mountain. No sooner than they had arrived, Jesus was transfigured. He was changed. Now, the disciples saw two other people with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. This is a major tale of mystery, of transformation, and promise. A little backstory. Both Moses and Elijah had mysterious passings and were believed by many Jews of their days to be portents of the coming of end times. We're told in 2 Kings that Elijah went bodily into heaven, just went. He didn't die. By the way, this is often a, a good um, Bible trivia question. There were three people who didn't die in the Bible, Elijah, Enoch, and Melchizedek. So, but Moses did die, but in Deuteronomy, we told that God buried Moses without a marker. It's a pretty unusual event. At the time of Mark's writing, it was understood that the mysterious circumstances around the end of Elijah's and Moses' lives meant that these two men of extraordinary faith were available at all times in all places to be servants of God, that they could be sent by God at any time to inform, inform humanity that God's reign was at hand. And so the disciples knew that history. They knew that lore. And so when they saw them, they knew that perhaps God's reign was at hand. So here they were on a mountaintop, and all of a sudden, Jesus is just in dazzling white clothes, standing in conversation with two of the greats who had been long gone. And Peter, bless his heart, he just starts talking. I kind of love Peter. I, I relate to him. He's so passionate and loyal and courageous and cowardly and always seems to start talking whenever he's nervous. He just can't help himself. 
Peter witnesses this extraordinary, unexplainable event and immediately goes into Peter mode trying to make sense of it all. He knew his scripture and the prophet Zechariah had pronounced that God would usher in a new age, the day of the Lord during the Feast of the Booths. And since one builds tents during this feast, and a day that included a bedazzled Jesus suddenly talking with Moses and Elijah certainly seemed like a day that might be a sign that God was taking control and ushering in a new day of shalom. So what else would one do but build some tents? Peter didn't know really what to do or to say because he was terrified. They all were. I know that I can relate to this. When everything seems out of place or out of control, I and many of us say something or do something not knowing if it's the right thing to say or to do, but it's our attempt to make something normal happen in the midst of everything that's not normal. We're trying to make the plane of reality that is tilted flat once again. So Peter is babbling, probably looking around for supplies to build his tents, and all of a sudden a cloud covers the sky, and the voice of God says, Stop! Stop your busy work. Stop trying to make sense of all this. Stop trying to tame this wild and extraordinary experience. Just be still and listen. Listen to this person I call beloved. That's all you need to do. Shut the chatter. Stop the fear. Put aside your worry of doing the right thing and just be here right now for just a moment and listen. And as soon as all that happened, things went back to normal with Peter, James, John, and Jesus just standing there. You know, there's no way for me to explain the transfiguration, and I'm not certain that I should even really try or that I'm supposed to. This is the last Sunday of the season of Epiphany, the time when we... Jesus is revealed to the world. The time when we learn of his godly prophecies, his holy promises, the gifts of healing, the promise that there is enough even when it seems there isn't, things that are unexplainable are right there at our grasp if we will stop and listen. It's a Sunday when we are reminded of God's eternal love for us as we will soon begin the strange and troubling walk to the cross. Perhaps this transfiguration was supposed to be a reminder that Jesus was one in a long and auspicious line of those chosen by God to fulfill God's hope for humanity and all of creation. 
Perhaps it's a reminder that if we are quiet and listen, we might see others who are in that long and auspicious line. Perhaps this transfiguration was a reminder that God's promise will be fulfilled on God's terms, not ones that we assume, not one that we define, not ones that we demand. Perhaps this day of transfiguration was a reminder that the power and glory of God is something that will be seen, will be known, cannot be defined, and absolutely cannot be ignored when we least expect it. Perhaps this day of transfiguration was a reminder of God's tender love. In her book, Reading Jesus, A Writer's Encounter with the Gospel, Mary Gordon cites a translation of Matthew 17.5 that has God saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I take delight. At the transfiguration then, we are in the presence of delight. Delight as an aspect of the holy, a delightful holiness. The scene is a reminder that delight is a characteristic of God, and it is participatory, and delight is shared. God loves, so God interacts. This delightful holiness expresses itself in self-giving, for that's what happens when someone adores and celebrates others. Take delight in Jesus, for God does. God expresses this delight when we gain a little more insight into the divine imagination. Which brings me back to mysteries. We fall in love because we delight in another. We get into cars and dare the rest of the drivers on the road to obey the rules because we delight in exploration. We have babies because we delight in new life and the opportunity they give us to love completely. We spend endless hours and a ridiculous amount of money growing beautiful beefsteak tomatoes because as Guy Clark said, what would life be without homegrown tomatoes? We eat that arroz a la tumbara in the little restaurant right on the Rio Papaluapan and Chilacotalpan because we delight in the sights and the sounds and the sweetness of the people, certain that when we eat what they make, we will consume some of that beauty. As disciples, we don't spend a lot of time talking about mystery, but we live it. We're not a, a wealthy denomination, and we are the fastest shrinking denomination in the United States, yet we make audacious claims that lead to delight. We claim that we will be a pro-reconciling, anti-racist people all the while, knowing that that means that we're going to have to face our personal and corporate histories as we tell our stories and as we listen, as we truly listen to one another. 
willing to risk our pain, and trusting that our holy friendships will allow us to love one another through our heartaches. We are committed to being an open and affirming people, believing that we are called to love one another as God loves us, even when tradition and history and even some of our beloved members who leave us because of this conviction. Because we have been told that to disregard or disrespect one of us is to do that to all of us. We've established something called a soul repair center. It's up at Bright Divinity School, a place where the fractured souls of those who have experienced moral injuries as a result usually of war, but other conflicts as well, and who may no longer feel worthy of normal lives can find healing and hope and perhaps one again, once again begin to live with delight. These are audacious undertakings that stand in absolute contrast to the world. Any logical person would walk away from each and every one of these endeavors. They make no sense. Their paths are difficult and they often include frequent setbacks. Sometimes they include suffering, but one who trusts in the surprising mystery of a living God just might see a dazzling, transfigured world, a world of sparkly delight. Amen.